I'll ask you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Timothy. You thought I was going to say Genesis. 1 Timothy chapter 4. I'm going to be reading the first five verses. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. This is the word of the Lord. So yeah, you'll notice that we are in 1 Timothy rather than Genesis. We're going to take just a little break here. If you're uh, one of these diligent people that look carefully at the church calendar, you'll realize that we have planned a pulpit exchange uh, with our Reformation Society of Western New York. And uh, that actually is going to be postponed just a little bit I will uh, tell you that, Lord willing, we will have Pastor Matt Fletcher here uh, in the first January, or sorry, the first Sunday of January. Um, Matt Fletcher is the faithful pastor of Webster Bible Church. His wife Ruthie was here ministering to our ladies just a couple of weeks ago, and uh, Matt and I will be switching pulpits uh, the very first Sunday of the new year. So you have that to look forward to. And I thought that uh, today, kind of in keeping with our harvest dinner and in light of Thanksgiving that is fast upon us, that we're going to turn our attention just for one week here to the topic of Thanksgiving. I realize that we're a week early, uh, but this coincides very nicely with the lovely dinner that the ladies have prepared for us, and I hope that you have made plans to join us immediately following the the service. I love these fellowship meals. Who am I kidding? I love meals, period. You know, from the aromas that waft up as uh, the meals are being prepared, uh, that, that distract us from listening to sermons and indeed preaching sermons, to the, to the tastes and the temperatures as you're consuming that meal, to the, to the satisfaction that, that comes with the empty plate. You know, when you arrange your, your knife and your fork at, at 2 o'clock and 10 o'clock, that satisfied feeling. There's, there's no part of a meal that is not delightful. I hope you would agree with me. I, and I'm speaking generally here, okay? I realize that there are exceptions. Um, McDonald's being a prime example. My wife made this observation a number of years ago and it has just proven itself to be true over the course of time. And, that, and she said, if you'll notice, nobody is smiling when they're eating fast food. Okay. Uh, she's not talking about the commercials. They always make them smile for the commercials. But in real life, it doesn't happen. You know, a, a happy meal is a huge misnomer. Even the toy the thing that saves that meal for kids is cast aside as soon as you return home. 
Now, I'm digressing already, but since we're talking about such things, I, I want to just tell you that I am happy that I very recently found an answer to something that has baffled me since childhood. I've always wondered, what is that big, dopey, purple McDonald's character named Grimace? What's he supposed to be? You know, like all the other characters are, are somewhat obvious. Ronald McDonald, of course, is, he's a clown. It's self-evident who the Fry Kids are. And it doesn't take much effort to figure out kind of how the Hamburglar fits into the cast of characters. But what on earth is Grimace supposed to be? I don't know about you, but I've always wondered that. And then finally, back in August of this year, uh, a manager of a McDonald's in Canada told People Magazine that Grimace is actually a giant taste bud. And it blew my mind at first, but then it, it actually started making sense. And if that's true, then he's got a, a perfect name because that's exactly what happens when McDonald's hits your taste buds. You, you, you grimace. Seriously, though, have you, have you ever thought about taste buds? Your ability to perceive and enjoy all of the different flavors, you know, salty and sweet, sour, savory. Some of you have gotten COVID over the past year or so. And with it, along with it, you get that telltale symptom, which is the loss of taste and smell. And uh, losing your smell, I guess, isn't so bad, especially if you have boys in your house. But losing your taste is a different matter altogether. It's, it's another one of the, the cases of you don't know what you have till it's gone. When you lose your taste. Have, have you ever given any kind of thought to why it does your heart so good to smell turkey roasting? or to bite into warm apple pie? Why, why do you actually smile when you smell a Kay Walkley roll or a, a Jason Elwell smoked meat of some sort? What, what accounts for the sheer joy of eating? Or perhaps you're here today as someone who feels sort of guilty when you eat. I'm not, I'm not so much here talking about the feelings of guilt that you have after you eat and after you've eaten way too much. There, there may be lots of good reasons why you might feel guilty afterwards. I'm talking about that feeling and perhaps you feel guilty before you eat or during eating. And maybe that's because someone has told you somewhere along the line, that certain foods are verboten. Certain foods are not to be consumed, that they're off the menu. Maybe it just feels wrong for you to be enjoying something as silly as food, as insignificant as the stuff that is meant to keep us alive. To, To derive pleasure from it seems to you to be sort of inordinate. And it makes you feel like there's probably something wrong with your affections if you're getting this excited about food. Maybe the really godly thing to do would be to eat every meal 
the same way that we eat fast food, which is expressionless and regretfully. This actually, if you're feeling that way, that actually fits with the default way in which we, let's just admit it, the way that we think about God. Every, everyone tends to view God as a sort of cosmic killjoy. You know what a killjoy is, right? It's kind of, it's kind of like that word hamburglar in that the definition is in the word. You know, a killjoy is someone who kills joy. Are you tracking with me here? If joy is like a mosquito, then first of all, you want to prevent it from ever coming around you in the first place. But if it happens to land, then it needs to be smacked immediately. That's what a killjoy believes and does. This is how God's commands are perceived. This is how the Bible is perceived. If you were to ask just a random person on the street, I'm sure this would be their testimony, that it's just a list of rules. It's just a huge, long, thick book of prohibitions. It's just God saying, no, 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 to everything that you like, that everything that is pleasurable, food, sex, wealth, these are all to be swatted away as soon as they even light on our minds. Now, where do we come up with such an idea? In many cases, we came up with this idea from folks that we regard as very holy, very godly. The, the way they, that we identify godly people is typically by their dour faces. You know, they're very serious, by which we mean sanctified. They're holy people, and the way that you can tell is that they never smile. Now, the Puritans have become a bit of a parody of this mindset, and maybe you've seen the collection of uh, Puritan Valentine's cards that some wag came up with a number of years back. One of these um, Valentine's cards from the Puritans says, Roses are red, violets are blue, and neither are useful or necessary at all. <laughs> Another card says, I thought to write you a love poem. And then it continues, For that thought I have beaten myself with a rough branch each night hence. <laughs> now the, the Puritans get a bad rap, and unfairly, I think. If you actually were to read the Puritans, you'd understand that they, they actually delighted in God's gifts. But it, it does seem to me that presently there are a lot of uh, what we might say prickly Protestants who resemble this remark. And there were in the early days of the church as well. In fact, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to young Timothy, who is a pastor, and he's pastoring a church here in Ephesus. And Paul writes this letter, and others like it, to warn him about people like this and perspectives like this, because they're perennial. They're always in the church for some reason. So Paul's writing this because he wants to remind young Timothy of the faith 
once for all delivered to the saints. And this letter is, is like full of sound doctrine. It's full of reminders of healthy, life-giving truth on which the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be built. And this is in contrast to the deadly doctrine that is always threatening to destroy people's faith. Paul doesn't want Timothy to be under any illusions that this is a safe game that he's in. No, this is dangerous. And there's always people lurking ready to destroy faith. And by the way, I hope that you understand that either way, whether you're talking about sound truth that can build up a church or you're talking about false teaching that could destroy a, a church, I hope you understand that doctrine is involved either way. Contrary to what many people believe, sadly what many Christians believe, doctrine actually really matters. It is important. It is essential. It's unavoidable. Either you're going to live or believe and then live in light of satanic doctrine, if you want to boil it all down, or you're going to believe and live in the light of sound doctrine. In our passage today, we're presented with both options, and we're going to see who, in fact, is the killjoy. We're hopefully going to get our faulty notions of food and marriage and things like it. Those are just two examples. But we, hopefully we'll get our faulty notions corrected by what I'm calling a thanksgiving theology. So we'll look at these two sides, and uh, these two, two sides are going to be um, titled kind of by their main proponents. So on the one hand, first, we have conscience-seared killjoys. Conscience-seared killjoys. You'll find space in the back of your bulletins to take some notes if you're so inclined. Now we're going to have to unravel some of this because Paul, like he almost always does, packs in so much into such little space. So in the span of just two verses, we're introduced to four different individuals or groups of individuals, each with their own set of descriptions. So briefly, you've got the spirit, you've got people who depart from the faith, you've got deceitful spirits or demons, and you've got liars. And more could be said and will be said about each of those, but notice that four different people or groups of people referred to in these two verses. And if you can imagine these four laid out in a square, two on the top, two on the bottom, then it starts to look like that old Sesame Street sketch that I watched when I was a kid. Um, one of these things doesn't belong. It's not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. Can you tell which one is not like the other? It's the Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit. And he's described somewhere else as the Spirit of Truth. And here Paul states that the situation that he is about to describe is something that the Holy Spirit has not only foreseen, but has forewarned about. And we're not exactly sure when and where the Spirit has done this. We're not really sure what's in mind 
what Paul has in mind when he says the Spirit expressly says, whether he's referring to Spirit-inspired Scripture in some other place, or the words of Jesus, as you know, Jesus was always warning about these sorts of things, or whether he is conscious of the Spirit's inspiration of him as he is currently writing Scripture to warn of these things. I don't know. But one thing is clear. In the latter days, some are going to depart from the faith. When exactly are these latter days? When are the end times? I've heard lots of people over the years, but it seems like increasingly lots of Christians are convinced that the end times are soon to be upon us. But if you're paying close attention, you'll notice that the way that the New Testament authors speak about later times or latter days or the end or whatever, they're always referring to a period that they're currently in. Okay, so even here in this passage, when Paul says later times, you think he's going to be talking about something in the future, but then he begins to describe something that is happening right then and something that has happened previously. Okay, so you, you understand that we're living in the same time period, so to speak, as the early church. We're living in these later days, these end times. That, that phraseology in the New Testament refers to that period of time um, between the giving of the Spirit and the second coming of Christ. And the church in Ephesus was in that time, and we, the church in Dansville, are in that time. And this is good because it's very relevant to us. We, we don't have to look, about, look, look at this, what we're looking at in 1 Timothy 4, and think, oh, that was just for way back then. Nor do we look at that and say, oh, that's going to come up at some later period. Maybe some other Christians in the future will have to worry about that. No, this is for us today. We're in this time. This is happening today. People are walking away from the faith today. And if people do this, it will be because of their devotion to false teaching. Now, I think the best way to explain this is to just jump ahead in the verse a little bit to see what the false teaching is that's leading people astray. And then we're going to back up and see where it comes from. So the false teaching, what is it? Well, it takes the form of a restriction. It's a prohibition. We see it in verse 3, where two examples of the kinds of restrictions that are required by these people are listed. Uh, one example is that marriage is forbidden, although marriage itself is, is likely not the issue, but the sexual relationship that comes along with marriage is the issue. The second example is that they require abstinence from food, or certain foods, we should say. And this is a little trickier because obviously you need some kind of sustenance to live off of. So you couldn't ban outright all food, even if you wanted to. So this must mean just certain types of foods. 
And, and probably what's in view here, uh, among other things, is meat. Perhaps what's in view here is a sort of vegetarianism for religious reasons. And Paul doesn't go into a lot of detail, but no doubt there was an elaborate list of rules about eating, the kinds of things that were acceptable, and then the whole long list of things that is forbidden. That's what was going on. Now, what these two examples of prohibitions have in common is that they're, they're both pretty basic human needs and desires, food and sex. They have, they, it, it's, it's part of who we are as human beings, and they have something else in common. They both pertain to the human body. And there was, at that time in Ephesus, a heavy influence of the Gnostic worldview. The Gnostic worldview maintained a a very strict duality, a distinction between the body and the soul. And along with it is the idea that whatever pertains to the body is kind of evil and to be avoided, and whatever pertains to the soul is good, and that's what we ought to pursue. Body bad, soul good. Whatever is physical and material ought to be abandoned insofar as it's possible. And then we ought to pursue everything that is spiritual and metaphysical, which is like super, more than physical. It rises above the physical. This is very closely, this Gnostic lifestyle is very closely related to asceticism. And that is the religious practice of abstaining from what is physically um, physical or pleasurable in order to pursue the truly spiritual. So you have these, all of these schools of thought which were going all around um, an important city like Ephesus, and they're actually uh, survived to our, in our own day. Uh, this view of Gnosticism and asceticism, it, it really describes many of the world religions like Buddhism and Hinduism and Jainism and to a degree Roman Catholicism and Islam even. And as we'll see, the, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is not immune to these influences, to these doctrines. And they're destructive doctrines. It's because of this, the Spirit expressly says, and Paul explains, that some in these latter days are going to abandon the faith. Now, where do these destructive doctrines come from? What is their ultimate source? Well, there is an ultimate source, and there's a more proximate source. So there's, there's uh, a source that's closer to them, and then there's an ultimate source that is further behind them. So we're introduced to two more parties in verses 1 and 2. The ultimate source of these destructive doctrines are, look at the text, deceitful spirits and demons. And this is vintage Paul. You know, he, he understood and he often explained to us that we ultimately are not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against the authorities, 
against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Deceitful spirits are mentioned in direct contrast to the spirit of truth. Okay, so you have the Holy Spirit that's leading Paul and, and us into truth, and he's warning against these deceitful spirits that would lead you into falsehood and ultimately into hell. And this lets us know, doesn't it, that ultimately every single person who ever has lived or ever will live, every single person is going to be controlled in one way or another by a spirit. The only question will be, will it be a deceitful spirit or will it be the Holy Spirit? And you know the devil's M.O., Hopefully by now you're not unaware of his schemes. He is prowling around like a roaring lion, and he's seeking to devour whoever he may. You have to understand this, that Satan and his demons are bent on your destruction. The idea that some will apostatize, and that's the, the word in the Greek that's, that's used here, uh, which means some uh, who appear to be following in uh, the path of Christ are going to demonstrate their true commitments by being led off of that path, and they'll make shipwreck of the faith, they'll apostatize. And that, that possibility, that reality is something that makes the devil and his demons just rub their grimy little hands together. That's, that's exactly what they love to see. And they're going to use whatever damnable doctrine they can to accomplish that. They'd love for it to be you. And it's interesting to me that we first saw Satan back in Genesis chapter 3 deceiving Adam and Eve by appealing to their senses. Do you remember this? He, he deceived them so that they did eat something that was prohibited. And here we find him standing behind these doctrines which are telling people not to eat. So what is it, Satan? Eat or don't eat. And the devil says, I don't care. Whatever is going to trip you up, that's what I'm interested in. You know, the, the devil is behind the sexual revolution, which you have to agree with me that in our day is just out of control. It's absurd. But here the devil appears as the main advocate of abstinence. You know, apparently the devil's all about purity culture. And this just goes to show you that the devil has no convictions whatsoever. He, he has no sincerely held beliefs. No, he'll do whatever is necessary. He'll say whatever he must. He'll take, you, he'll, he'll take whatever position he, he must in order to destroy you. He's not a reliable guide. Now verse 2 tells us that these demons, these spirits, work their dastardly deceptions through human agency. Through human agents. And this is the fourth party that we are introduced to in these opening verses. These are the false teachers. These are people who are wielding some sort of power, 
so that they're the ones that are able to do the forbidding. Uh, they're the ones that are able to require abstention from certain things and enforce it. Listen to how they're described in verse 2. And we'll start with the last description. It says, They have seared consciences. Now the word in the original Greek uh, is, is helpful in this case because it's the same word that we get the word cauterize. And cauterize is a medical term to describe a procedure in which a hot tool is used to, to like basically burn the blood vessels to stop bleeding. Or it's used to stop a wound from, to, to quickly close up a wound, so that it, a wound so it doesn't become infected. And the result of that is an area, it's a surface that has lost its function, it's lost its sensitivity. You know, the, the psalmist can speak of, using very similar language it seems to me, of the insolent who... He says their hearts are unfeeling like fat. So you know when you have, th this is how it works, uh, your conscience can become unfeeling. Uh, it can be cauterized. It's like, it, at one point, in its pristine point, it was, it was healthy. It was nice and pink. And, and your conscience works like the warning lights on your car dashboard. You know, to, it's, it's meant to let you know that something is wrong. Something's going really wrong with your current thought or behavior. But you know what you can do with your dash lights? You, you can totally disregard that. Uh, when that service engine light soon comes on, you, some, cover, some people even cover over them with electrical tape. And... Uh, Maybe you can like find the fuse and just unplug it so it doesn't show up. And other people don't need to take those extreme kind of measures because they've gotten to the point where they don't even notice it anymore. It's like it's become part of the ambience of, of your car's dashboard. In the same way, when you regularly ignore the warnings of your conscience, it just stops having it's God-given, God-intended effects. And again, that's a deliberate action on your part. It's almost as if you had put uh, tape over the light. And that's what it's like to cauterize your conscience. The result is a person that can engage in all kinds of evil behavior without even batting an eye. And these are the same people who are preaching about what is moral and immoral. People who have totally lost their ability to perceive what is moral and immoral. Now because these people are conscience-seared, false teachers are liars. They, they become willing conduits of these evil spirits, the father of lies, likes to use that, that sort of a person to spread his deception. These people have no qualms about teaching things that are not true. And, and you get from the text the impression that this is deliberate, like they know 
it's not true. They know that what they're insisting on is a pile of garbage, which leads them to the next thing, which is actually first on our list. It says these liars are insincere. They're, they're actually hypocrites. They don't even believe what they're telling you not to do. And the way that you know that is that they're sneaking around behind everyone's back doing the very things that they prohibit others from doing. They're insincere, they're liars, they're, they have seared conscience. And all of these, here's how all of this is connected. People are losing their way, they're abandoning the faith through the hypocritical lies of false teachers who have cauterized consciences. But behind all of that deception stands the devil and his demons. But above all of this, is the Holy Spirit of God who is not only aware that all of these things will take place, he's not, he, he's not even knowing that all of this must take place. No, the Spirit is also the sovereign and he's, he's present in the midst of this warning the people of God and preserving us by his grace. So don't lose sight of that. All this talk about the devil and his demons. We have the Holy Spirit of God who is not surprised in the least by any of these developments. So we're going to move on, but not... I just Before we do, I want you to just step back and see the big picture. Who exactly are the killjoys here? Who exactly are the ones saying no to everything. Do not taste, do not touch, do not handle, you must not marry, sex is dirty, no, 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 no. What, what doctrinal system is full of prohibitions? It's the doctrine of demons. Now let's turn to the next point in which this terrible theology is corrected. And again, we're going to examine this by looking at its main proponent, which is the Lord himself. Or as I've called him, this is point number two, a cosmic create joy. A cosmic create joy. I'm not even sure that's a word. But it should be. I mean, what's the opposite of a kill joy? A create joy, obviously. Now, the opposite of someone who plays whack-a-mole whenever something good and joyous pops up, the opposite of that is the one who makes all of these good things constantly pop up. And God, we know, is the author of every good and perfect gift. And it's not even that God permits what these false teachers are prohibiting. That, that's too mild to say that God just allows what all of these other guys are forbidding. Because when you say that, it's as if these, these things are just kind of out there and God is external to them. No, it's much, it's much closer than that. God is the one who has actually made all of these things. He's created them and he's done so purposefully. He has made and created things like food and marriage and sex for the sheer delight of his creatures. 
Paul's correcting our theology first by reminding us of the doctrine of creation. Do you remember Genesis 1 and 2? I say we're taking a break from Genesis, but actually we're right back in to Genesis. Genesis 1 and 2, you'll recall, it was God who made the sun and the water and the fruit-bearing plants and the crops that yield food. It was God who made the man. And then from the man, he made a beautiful woman, a perfect corresponding partner. And then he brought her to the man and they were united in marriage. All of that is God's idea. That's God's design. Adam's not even, that's not even on his radar yet when the Lord God does it. And God is presiding over the ceremony in which Adam is just giddy with delight. You have to believe that that delighted the Lord as well. It was God who designed that the two would become one flesh. And he blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. It was God who designed the Garden of Eden. And then he placed the man and the woman in the middle of it And they're surrounded by this vast array of life-giving trees that have delicious fruit in them. And recall that God's invitation to them was expansive. He said, you may surely eat of every tree that's in the garden. Yes, there's one exception. But do you understand the expansiveness, the, the, the gift-giving nature of that glorious command to eat? God's saying it's wide open. There, there's only actually one prohibition, not a whole long list of them. And you know the rest of the story, don't you? I don't have to tell you how Adam and Eve departed from the faith by devoting themselves to the teaching of demons. But I do want you to understand that they fell because they did not believe in the goodness of God in that moment. They, they were deceived into thinking that God is a cosmic killjoy. And, and in that moment, they forget that he has only ever demonstrated himself to be a cosmic create joy brothers and sisters my point simply is that remembering the goodness of God is going to prevent you from stumbling here's the bedrock theological truth in verse 4 look at it this is a principle that you can take to the bank and live in the light of everything created by God is good And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Do you notice there, look again, notice that expansive, liberating language. Everything created is good. Nothing is to be rejected. False teachers say no all the time, but the Lord says yes. False teachers say, do not taste. Jesus says, take and eat. 
Hypocrites teach, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And the Lord says, no, the marriage bed is undefiled. He's a cosmic create joy. And here's how he has designed this to work. God is the good giver. He's the generous gift giver. And we play the role of the thankful receivers. And it's in that transaction that a thing is sanctified for for use. That's what verse 5 means when it says that thing is made holy. Made holy. It's made holy by two things. First, by the Word of God. And as you know, that phrase in Scripture can refer to a number of different things, including Scripture itself. But I think the context would once again point us back to Genesis chapter 1. After every creative act, what did the Lord God say? He said, it is good. And at the end of creation week, what was the word of the Lord? It is indeed very good. A created thing, therefore, is sanctified by the word of God. It's creator, declaring it to be good. That, that's one part of, of things. In the second place, a thing is made holy by, the text says, prayer. That's our part. And again, prayer and scripture can be of a variety of types, but the context and the repeated words in this passage point to a particular kind of prayer. A prayer of thanksgiving. This, this is how we properly receive good gifts from God. We acknowledge exactly what God has said about it. We acknowledge that that gift is good and we express our thanks about receiving it. I hope you don't read this or in your own mind think of prayer and especially like prayer before a meal as a sort of magic formula. You know, you got you got to pray before you eat or if you you know, if you don't you'll get heartburn or something. You know, sometimes we speak that way. Sometimes we think that way. If we come late to a table, we ask like, is it blessed? You know, did someone do the thing? Is this safe to eat? And I think what we mean by that is, you know, the a sort of Roman Catholic mindset we're, we're, we're wondering if, if our prayer, you know, kind of rings a little bell in the distance and the thing has changed now into some holy thing, mystically. No, if, if we think that way, we're missing the point completely. The point is that prayer is the proper way for us to acknowledge a good gift from a good giver. It's, it's, it's a main way that we express our gratitude to God. Think of it as a handshake, okay? A handshake. Picture that in your mind. You know, there's, I, can't, I can't really do it here, but there's two hands involved. There's God's hand and there's your hand. And God is giving with His, and we are receiving with ours, 
Okay? And as he gives, God is pronouncing his word. This is good. And with our prayers, in a sense, we grasp his hand and we say, it is good. Thank you. Thank you. That, that's, the, that's the transaction. That, that's, that's a holy kind of a transaction. Now, what is the worst thing that you can do as it pertains to a handshake? Well, the worst thing happens, the most awkward thing happens when you leave a guy hanging. I don't know, young people, if you use that expression anymore. I know times have changed. We're not, we're fist bumping now. We're not even shaking hands. But do you still, it's still possible to leave a guy hanging. And that, that's not right. That's awkward. They've got their hand out to you and you either don't see it or you don't acknowledge it. And it's, it's brutal in every possible way. Well, think about this now in terms of our analogy. God is reaching out with his hand, with his gift, and we're just leaving him hanging. Romans 1 says that for this reason, the wrath of God is upon mankind. It's because we know in our heart of hearts that this creation and everything in it is a work of God. It's a gift of a good God. And, and we don't acknowledge it. We don't acknowledge it. We, we neither give him glory nor thanks, the text says. And that, that's what's at the heart of rebellion and sin. Maybe you're here today as an unbeliever and you think, oh, I'm, I'm good. You know, when I die, I'm probably going to go to heaven because I haven't done anything like murder or I'm not like some predator. I'm good. No, that's not why you're condemned. That's not why you're deserving of God's wrath and hell. You're deserving of, of hell not because you commit those atrocious sins, but fundamentally it's because you're thankless and that you fail to give God the glory that is due his name. Your whole lives are, are geared away from that and towards your own thing. It, you're living your life in that respect just like leaving the Lord hanging. And that's, the analogy breaks down because the Lord's not the pathetic person in that scenario. You are. We're all thankless people at heart. And therefore we are all, by nature, objects of God's wrath. But instead of wrath, what's this? This is, it's another good gift. That's putting it way too mildly. It's a good and perfect gift coming down from the Father of lights. It's, it's the Word of God. It's His very Son sent unto His own and His own did not receive Him. But see that Jesus lives a life of perfect obedience. Even when he's tempted in the wilderness, he does not devote himself to the doctrine of demons. No, he instead depends on the Holy Spirit and on the Word of God. And then he goes to the cross to, to bear the wrath of God that is coming against me because of all of my thanklessness and ingratitude and failure to glorify like I've been created to do. Jesus does that in my place. 
so that I might walk in the freedom of the sons of God. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And now, we're simply called to live lives that are characterized by dependence. Dependence on God, enjoyment of God, profound thankfulness for God and for all of his gifts. We're called to be a thankful people, which is to say, a praying people, a sharing people, who don't hold on to their, the gifts that they've received in a tight-fisted way, but actually are eager to give to others. We're, we're called to freely give as we have freely received. And in keeping with this, and in remembrance of this, we will be, in an hour or so, participating in the Lord's Supper. Some traditions call the Lord's Supper the Eucharist. Have you heard that before? That, that's actually based off of the Greek word that occurs in the New Testament to describe communion. And the word is Eucharisteo, which means I give thanks. This is a reminder that the Lord's table is a table, it's a thanksgiving table where his bounty is spread for us and we respond with a humble, grateful thank you. Now one of the great benefits of possessing and practicing this thanksgiving theology is that you won't be susceptible to the, to the serpents. And you won't be susceptible to the conscience-seared so-and-sos who try to shipwreck your faith with a list of things not to do. Those are the real killjoys. You're never going to be tempted to view God that way. To view God as a cosmic killjoy if you are regularly, joyfully receiving His gifts and returning your thanks. You're not going to be in danger of, of seeing God as curmudgingly and, and um, tight-fisted. No, you will see him as he intends to be seen, which is as a cosmic create joy. Amen? Amen.